Hey everybody, with your uh, with your new USB C iPhone or whatever it is that you got, it's Jeremy. You're listening to Blamo. How are we all doing? I'm back from New York and uh, I'm exhausted. I'm just I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm I'm dead. I'm dead to the world. It was um it was a good trip. You know, it was one of those where uh, one of those trips where it felt like everything went right while also everything could not have gone worse. <laughs> sort of trips, right? Um. Thanks to everyone that came out to our event at J. Crew. It was great. Lots of folks came out to see Brendan and I and check out some dope suits. Yeah, it was a good time. Then, you know, I had a bunch of recording planned. I had a special guest for this Patreon pod and everything. I mean, it just all went way south. I recorded some other stuff. Then files went corrupt on my mobile unit. I mean, it, you know, it was it was just all bad. But hey, everybody, life goes on. Now I'm back. I'm watching my son throw Cheerios all over the place. You know, back, back, back to reality. Look, there's no good transition right now, but my guest, Mr. Benjamin Edgar Gott, most of you know him as Benjamin Edgar. He's a designer, he's an artist, and he's someone I wanted to chat with for, geez, a really long time. Look, I mean, I'll say this, as the show has grown, less and less of these folks are people in the Rolodex. In fact, I don't know, hardly any are. And so sometimes... I get linked with someone and I'm like, okay, here it goes. Do they listen to the pod? Do they even care? Is this something that they even want to do? And it could not have been any further from that with with Benjamin. I mean, he was down for all of it. And it was a really beautiful chat about his practice, why he thinks the way he thinks. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I felt even more connected to his work after we wrapped. We discuss life in Chicago, starting his career at age 17, falling in love with art in the library, shout out the public library, co-founding The Brilliance, Boxed Water, creating an object company, the infamous cigarette holder, oh, you know what I'm talking about, and his relationship with the late Virgil Abloh. This was a good one, folks. Let's dive in. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like I said, super honored to be invited, honestly. Dude, come on. You're like a legit artist. It's an interesting, maybe we could get into that. And I, you know, I listened to your one with Lauren Sherman, right? Was recently. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys were talking about not living in New York. Mm -hmm. And that's like such an interesting topic in and of itself, because you can feel quite removed from maybe even what your perception of the projects you're working on are. You know what I mean? But you're, you're at least in a big city, right? Cause you're in Chicago. Yeah. I'm in Chicago. Yeah. And that's, that's still, I mean, a very respected place. No, you know? for sure. But it's not, I mean, I'm in New York about every two to three weeks, which is like a lot. But um, yeah, I've been doing that for quite a while, uh, for a few years, actually. So it's like I'm always there. It's, you know, an hour and 45 minute flight from O'Hare. It's super quick. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, definitely a Chicagoan. Yeah. So, I mean, because we're we're Midwest folks. Are you you a Cub guy? Are you a Sox Sox guy? Sox for sure. Sox. Okay. Well, there you go. You passed the test. This pod will now continue. (laughs) Yeah, definitely suck. I live on the north side now, which is weird, but I'm from the south side, yeah. Oh, okay. There we go. Because, yeah, north side's all all cubbies. Are you like Olympia Field, south side, sort of? That's bizarrely close to where I'm from. Yeah, I was born in East Hazelcrest, lived all over like Chicago Heights, Park Forest, and Homewood and all that stuff. And then I'm in the city downtown on the Gold Coast now. Okay, nice. So what what's what was your situation like? So you you grew up your Chicago through and through. Never never left. No, I, I lived in Michigan for some work stuff for a while as well. For quite a sprint, actually, I lived in Grand Rapids uh, for about ten years. What were you doing there? I, when I left home, and I was I left home when I was about eighteen. Uh, actually, two weeks after high school, I had a I was a software developer. That's kind of how I got into this whole world. And so I mm-hmm. skipped college into that whole thing. But 
when I was 17, um, you know, the internet was kind of becoming more part of our lives. And my father had a friend who was starting a startup. He was wealthy and was like, hey, would your son be able to help me out? And so my senior year of high school, I had like a very small but still a salary while I was in high school, you know, and that like kind of screws your brain up a little bit in terms of how you view maybe your next steps in life. And he was like, are you going to college? And I was like, uh, yeah, maybe I was going to go to Columbia here in Chicago. Yeah. And he was like, well, would you come work for the summer and see if you like it? And I kind of like never looked back. And it was, it, it was a time where like, I didn't feel such a huge attachment to the city, Chicago. Mm -hmm. I was just like, blue skies are ahead. Try this crazy thing out. Yeah. yeah it was a very weird way to like, start life if you think about it you know not only no college but like no drifting like straight into work you know oh my god so yeah, like well, no no like punk band in the middle of your career sort of thing it's just work not really i would say right now is probably more the punk band phase of my life in the past <laughs> five to six years where it's a little it's my wilderness years than than that time i just worked you know like so you were working as a software developer yeah, I was a web developer back when like a web developer did the front end, the back end, the whole thing. Yeah, I was a classic ASP and SQL developer. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Mm -hmm. Damn. That's so that it's interesting. So you so you didn't go to college. No. Dude, join. Well, welcome to the club. Okay, this, good. That makes me feel good. <laughs> can I can I ask you a question? And I don't want to project on you here, but like, mm -hmm. do you feel the insecurity of not having a degree sometimes? You know, it's really weird. I think well, when you're really young, I think I was. I think my personality was significantly different at that time in my life. I it was very like punk to use that word mm -hmm. to not do it and to have found some financial success which you know financial success is great but it's like are you happy do you like the work you're doing you learn those things later i think in life um when you're young it's just like holy shit like <laughs> i have money. how am i like how did i go from having a teacher three weeks ago telling yeah. me what to do to like my own apartment and like you know never had a roommate like you know what i mean like a crazy and my father's a carpenter and my mom was a school teacher it's not like you know yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a very interesting transition in my life. So for so long, and then like a couple startups, and then like life kind of ticked up, and and the brilliance, and like other things that happened. I was just like, why on earth would you go to college? But that fades over time, and you start realizing like really great relationships can be built from college or further education. It's your choice. Like now, it's my job to stay up to date and be educated and like work on things. So no, I've never really felt any insecurity. I don't know. Maybe I did because I just was like, oh, good to hear that you didn't, too. But, you know, there's something <laughs> there's like something that that I think I've been at like dinner parties or whatever with the higher echelon of people. And some of them are truly confused by it. They're like, so what did you do after high school? And I was, I was just working and they're just like, what? Yeah. It's really confusing for some people, I think. I, I, I'm totally with you. So, like, I mean, my situation was in a sense that, like, I didn't have a job per se, but I was like, I'm going to New York to go be, you know, a rock star, right? I think Which, that's even harder than what I did. Like, well, you and I don't Chris, know. You and Chris Black did the same thing. And sometimes I'm like, man, that's tricky because you're not going to have a nice apartment. It's going to yeah. be hard, you know, like. I mean, it was hard in, in ways, but I mean, I had a lot of advantages just being, you know, an idiot. Um, and I think there was an ignorance or a naivete and and maybe um, an assumption that just like, I don't, I don't need this stuff to be in this world. Like, I yeah. don't need that. But when in like my darkest hours and I was you know, when I didn't really know what I was doing and I was looking for other jobs or other things in my life and I was unsure of where I was, I kept thinking, oh, you know, the real reason it's because you never did this, you uh -huh. know, and, yeah, that, and that's a heavy, yeah. that's a heavy feeling. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm not 
saying you had that, but other people I know who are, in your case, you know, very successful, but don't have the traditional background, you know, because people would be like, well, Steve Jobs didn't go to college or do yeah, this. And I'm just things, like, it gets, it gets lauded even for me. And yeah. I think it's like chill and celebrating it too much. Don't, it, it's an edge case, I think. Less so now. Now it's more normal back then. I mean, dude, it was crazy. Well, and I think, yeah, that's the thing too, right? Where there's, you did go to a higher education, I'm air quoting that, you had the Mm -hmm. higher education experience of that part in your life. It was just a very different structure. You know, I mean, the the paper means, unless you're what, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to go into finance stuff. And in most cases, it means nothing. Yeah. I remember being in the room when some of the companies I either started or just things I was around or those MBA types would be around Harvard MBA types and things. And, um, I remember feeling so removed from them um, and not like in a bad way. Like we could totally go out and have a drink, have a great dinner and all that. But in the business setting, I think when you're starting your own thing, even a, pod- a podcast, like anything that you're starting from zero, mm-hmm. it just rewires your brain. And I'm like, I don't understand why I need the validation of uh, you know education or whatever. If you made something and people are responding to it, that's really hard to do. And then to continue to grow it and to continue to uh, take personal satisfaction for it or create something that's maybe financially sustainable is so difficult that when I see someone who hasn't gone through that, I think I have a little chip on my shoulder and I have to be careful of that. But I'm just like, have you felt like the pain and built the scar tissue of doing something that completely fails and then trying to do it again, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that's the exact thing is to which the only thing that I feel like the non-traditional, and I'm curious, uh, you know, if, if this is the same with you of having the non-traditional higher education, which is, it was funny because I, I talked to a friend of mine who has been through all of the traditional higher educations and I've shared these insecurities with him. And he's like, no, no, you just had a, a non-traditional one. He's like, you still had it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but the thing that happens with people that have those similar experiences is there's there's less of a structure applied to more of the ideas that you have in the best way. In the sense mm-hmm. that like, yeah, I don't need to go through A, B, C, D, and E to get here. We're very intuition driven, which doesn't always work. Yeah. It's like, look, I just I just need to build the thing. So whatever steps I need to take to make that, I can do it versus, well, sorry, because your training and, you know, told you you needed to have this to move here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just like, that doesn't matter if we can build this product or if we can make this thing together or achieve this idea, then, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily matter as much. And in a weird way, that was the, like the security blanket he gave me that I think about a lot more into which I'm not so focused on processes for better and for worse. It's more on product and collaboration. I would say that. I would, yeah, I would say the same thing. The processes come in after you maybe like, let's say you make a widget or a service or something and it finds a little bit of success and you want to replicate that or grow that, then some process is helpful. But in the beginning, it's just like, you're, you know, I talk about my friends with the object company. It's probably one of the purest companies I've started because we buy all the inventory up front. We do all the design work, all the photography, everything gets done up front. No one knows about it, goes on the site. And then you sit there and go, is it going to work? It's a very like <laughs> brutal form of business. And then if it works, you're trying to figure out a, you know, a better supply chain, maybe some better pricing. But all I'm looking right. for in the beginning is, is their demand. Right. Like that's it. <laughs> so, so you have the, the very like non-traditional background. You, mm-hmm. you do the software thing. And where did all the art stuff come in? Because I think for other people I know that know you, they talk about you as an artist first. That's very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the art was always there. Young, like growing up, my mom would take me to the um, Art Institute here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Lots of field trips there. I remember kind of formative seeing uh, contemporary art when it wasn't in the modern wing of the Institute here in Chicago when it was 
in an older wing and and seeing a particular piece by i want to say it was dan flavin i can't remember no it wasn't dan flavin it doesn't really matter but it was like it was um it had some nudity in it that seemed really crass and i remember i was like seven asking my mom like i thought like we're supposed to be quiet in the museum and this is like a the special place like that looks like a really bad dick drawing <laughs> oh bruce nauman it was a bruce nauman piece and okay I only found that out that it was a Bruce Nauman piece like five or six years ago. I didn't know at the time. Yeah, yeah. And she yeah. was like, well, like that's, you know, she was trying to explain to me contemporary art, basically. And uh, that, something happened, I think, that I didn't really realize till many years later. But art was a big part of it, you know, seeing Monet's haystacks and things like that at the Institute and really kind of liking the environment of being around art and the freedom that came with it. And oddly enough, I would say the programming is when it really kicked in. When I really got into programming was when I was 13, taught myself how to program in basic at the public library. And wow, uh, yeah, really, really nerdy. And uh, it felt like I had unlimited Lego pieces now because I could just make, you know, I didn't need to buy more Lego sets. If I had a new idea, I could just program more stuff. And I was never actually a terribly good programmer, but I was obsessed with the output of it, like the final product and this complete control that you had. And it didn't cost you any money. It was just time, you know, and when you're 13 or 14, you can stay up 24 hours. It doesn't bother you, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I felt such a freedom in the software development space. And then the internet hit, you know, and then it was like we could express ourselves publicly. What sort of environment are you in that gives you the confidence to go teach yourself basic at 13? <sighs> and the confidence? I don't know. I spent, I mean... This is where you really start to, I, you and I, I'm assuming, are somewhat similar in age, and we bridge the literally no internet and internet, yep. like super weird part of humanity, in my opinion, that because there's, it's just a, such a moment in time. I think um, you, I just hung out at the library a lot. I don't know. I, I was really into skateboarding and then the library. Like, if you, even if you ask my mom, like, those were the two places that I wasted my time. And I those think are, it's rare that you had individuals who would do both I yeah i wasn't like out. the stoner skater guy i mean we were all in that crew i like I, I just liked skateboarding it was a huge part of my life from age seven till technically now um <laughs> that that little edit on the vans collaboration i did that is me indeed ollieing on the ice which was like one of the stupidest things to do in your 40s but um <laughs> it took a lot of tries uh yeah, but no yeah. I, I don't i don't i don't have a good answer for the for the confidence side of things i think sometimes i wonder like why like why does the mind choose those things like why didn't i do something else you know yeah it seems random it's i mean it's it definitely is like that i mean we we hung out at the library when i was younger just because it wasn't really any other thing to do and my mom would do it because it was free you know i mean i didn't come from probably much similar money. reasons honestly. yeah you could go there and there was always you know stuff to do mm -hmm. kind of air quoting and we didn't have cable but when i when i found out that you could freaking rent vhs from the library and the stuff that you could rent was like it was like terry gilliam stuff and it was like you know i think we gotten like faulty towers and stuff from the library which is john cleese's like epic comedy television show mm -hmm. you know all, all these things i'm like how how does the library have this stuff this is it was you when know, I, like when i discovered they had all the magazines i was like wait all of yeah them? i was like so why do you buy them did you <laughs> you know did you, did your library have, what was it like the microfilm thing where it's like you put the Microfiche? little. Microfiche, yeah. I yeah, never tried it though. I, it was always nuts because it's not the best experience to try to read anything, right? But you, yeah, you had like newspapers. that From were, like a hundred years ago. You yeah. Know, pretty unbelievable yeah. stuff, yeah. It was, but it, to me it's still amazing. And it's funny now because I took my daughter, I have a, a five-year-old. And uh, and we we take her to the library and get books and stuff. And she was like, "Dad, who owns the library?" Great question. And I was like, "What do you mean?" 
she's like, well, if I'm if I'm borrowing these books, who's whose are they? And I was like, well, Harriet, I'm like, yeah, technically, unpack here. Yeah, I was, like, <laughs> I was like, we all own the library. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's the community, and and we all share it and all this stuff. And she's like, well, why don't we do that with cars? I'm like, oh wow. Man, five. There's so we know so much what direction she's headed in life. Yeah, I know. She's like, "Why don't we do that with everything?" And you know, and I was like, "Yeah, well, that's a, well, well." It's a valid question. <laughs> whether yeah, whether I mean all the complexities that come with that, but it's I love that. But that's like okay, so the library prompted that her to have that question. That's the point of the library to me. Like mission accomplished. But it's not even about the book. It's this like vast trove of data, but it's really kind of like what how you feel when you're there or the questions it may prompt, you know? Yeah. I think the the library in itself gives a bit of confidence to where absolutely most librarians and people who work in libraries like don't they're not questioning your age when you are wanting to do something. At least for me, I never remember that happening when I was yeah. you It was know. very serene. It was like mm-hmm. this respite um from whatever was going on. You know, if you were skating, there was always air conditioning or whatever to stop in for a <laughs> bit. And you just wandered, you know, it's it's really bizarrely similar to how we waste time on the internet now. I mean, it's not that different, really. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, because it's very democratic. Everything's accessible. You just have to be quiet at the library and you have to be loud on the internet. <laughs> wow, that's a damn good take. Okay. <laughs> so you're at the library, you're teaching yourself stuff. Yeah. You're and you know, then you go, you work at this um software company. Mm-hmm. What why did you leave? Um there there was uh there was an opportunity. So the one the owner of the one company was friends with this other company in supply chain and logistics, and they did a lot of work for like Herman Miller and Steelcase because it was in West Michigan area at the time, mm-hmm. which is only like two and a half hours out of Chicago. And uh I just was so <laughs> sometimes when I retell these stories, I'm like, is this me doing this stuff? Like why why did I feel so compelled to do this? And they were like, Well, you know, would you would would he want to come and kind of consult with us? We're you know, we're trying to build out a software arm of our company, you know, better inventory tracking systems and truck tracking systems and and so then I had, that was my last real job was that one. And I worked there for six years and uh, eventually became kind of like, I guess you'd say like an executive level person at age, like, you know, 24. And it was just a very interesting time in my life and wrote software for Hayworth, like wrote their international supplier portal system and like had to pitch it and sell it. And that's when I learned how to like talk publicly and and, and show products and, and that how, how things looked on the web. This is now on the web, uh-huh. how things looked and how people interacted with it, which we would now call like UX, like really yeah, mattered. Yeah. But that was like my, my old quote used to be like, why is everybody at the DMV so upset? It's because they have to use shitty software, you know? And it was like, they should, you know, it's like, I don't think everything around you needs to constantly be beautiful. And that's totally subjective anyways. But like, I was really excited with taking these really boring supply chain problems. And it was like, well, what if it looks compelling? You know, like, what if the UPS tracking page like looks really good or something like that? And so I was never, again, I was never a good programmer. In fact, sometimes I'm like, how did you guys let me do all this? Like, there was no real safety net. But yeah, I... I then worked at that company for a while, and then I had my first hand at a startup, which was to help independent artists distribute their music, kind of before iTunes was allowing independent artists to distribute their music. Think kind like of like Bandcamp, a, like a, thing? a very poorly made Bandcamp. Yeah, sure, would be my version. And I uh, raised money for my first time on that one, and then didn't really go anywhere, and and, and a couple other little startups, and then Boxwater. Yeah, yeah, because Boxwater. But, I but think the is brilliance where... is going on during this whole time. Brilliance is like 2005. Wait, oh, it was? Yeah. So, oh. like, right. I mean, I prog- I cold rolled the entire thing. The the 
content management system, the whole thing. That site's completely from scratch. That's why it looks the way it does at the back end, the whole thing. Yeah. So, okay, here's here's the thing. So, especially for people who work in engineering and tech and whatever developer side that with their full stack or whatever, mm-hmm. rarely is there someone who has the understanding of UX, but also has all the programming knowledge. And I know that a bunch of people are going to message me and be like, actually, that's not true. But mm-hmm. I feel like in the era that you were coming from, you that wasn't, yeah. Which sure, it was back when there were like IT departments and stuff like that, that basically, it's like when a company would have its own servers on site, which is like so old now, right? Yeah, yeah. You would host it somewhere else now. Or, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I think, to be honest, I don't think I ever really loved programming sometimes as much as it even sounds like I, I do. It was It was the result of it. And so that's what drove my interest in UX and UI, which we would call it now. It's like, I just liked making really interesting web presences. I like making things that were useful to people or that someone smiled maybe when they used it. And if you were, it's hard to do that if no, if you don't have any users. So I kept getting these opportunities, whether it was a really boring system, like a cross docking system where you're checking in packages. I'm like, what if it looked cool? And that was entirely (laughs) me pushing my, what I thought was cool on them, you know? And the so, funny thing about all this is like, it sounds very like Apple-like because I, I lately, l- later became very obsessed with Apple in the early days and Steve and all that stuff. But I was a PC user for like forever, really? which is like really weird. But for software back then, that was what you used. Yeah, it's true. So what's informing cool to you at this time in your life? Um, community. Um, I think a lot about like, like you have this podcast and allows you to constantly interact with interesting people. Uh And I think like, that's like such a gift and it's, it it requires maintenance. It requires scheduling in your part and time and, and being a conversationalist and all that kind of stuff. I admire people who are building things that keep them really plugged in with humanity on a, even though we're recording this digitally and we're not sitting next to one another, this is a human conversation. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in that. I find podcasting really interesting. It's very web web 1.0 but it has survived. Nothing's really changed about the yeah, format. The RSS of the feed, Truly, which is yeah. good and bad. <laughs> right. And uh, it's just, it's it's direct. Uh, the creator owns it. Um, yes, they're using distribution channels and things like that, but they're not really subjected to the algorithm. It's They're just subjected to creating something from scratch. So that's a really abstract answer, but I'm really interested in community-based things or like projects that connect you with other people. Um, so what I'm, were your message boards then? <laughs> I was a Nike Talk guy, Super Future. Okay. okay. And I think that's it. I never posted on them though. You just lurked? Yeah. I never posted on Nike Talk once, I don't think. Well, yeah, I don't think you missed much. I, lo- I, I kind of loved it. It was weird. I think I was like, I think I was consuming it the same way I consume podcasts. I just listen to them or watch them to stay really up to date on what's happening. Like I find the, yeah. I find the feed very interesting. Nike Talk was great. For folks that didn't know, it was a message board that was basically a sneakerhead message board. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Nike Talk, at least for me, it was the first... You know, I was in Styleform and Super Future and Style mm-hmm. Zeitgeist, and I was on some Reddit stuff, and then I was on Network 54, which is a watch forum. But Nike Talk was one of the only ones, which is surprising based on what Styleform is now, that that had like a toxicity to yeah, it. Where like true. people would would kind of fight, you know. There were they, characters they, too. And it was like it yeah. lived offline and online. And obviously I didn't participate in any of that. But, but yeah, there was like character. I know some of them personally still today. You know, yeah, it's it, it It was a cool I mean, I will say like I learned a ton about sneakers and releases and, and retros and all this stuff from that era. But so were there certain people that you would do like in person meetups or whatever that you got more? No, you know, no, no, I would just I just would. No, I, I, this makes it sound like I was so weird. I mean, the brilliance was also <laughs> catching up at the same time, too. But like it was really Chuck that gave 
the brilliance, the boost that it had, right? Because well, he had, he had such let's a... Let's explain the brilliance then for yeah. some folks who don't know. How do we? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah. What this collective of, of, I don't even know what the right word is to call it. It started from, this is the podcast, the dusty podcast with, with me dating myself, but it started because Chuck and I constantly would communicate all day long on what people would think of as text now. But this is even before we weren't, we didn't use AIM or MSN Messenger for some reason. We just would have really long email threads and there'd be jokes or a link to something we thought was interesting or some new design thing that we found compelling. Mm-hmm. And he was like, we should start a blog with this because blogging was starting to happen at the time. And uh, I said, cool. So like we rolled this site up and then I think the magic addition to it was just little of these quick posts. I mean, if you go to the brilliance.com now, you'll see exactly like this um, is like a zine sort of thing, but because w- blogging was almost like derogatory early on. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it zines like a really cool way to describe that because that's, and it kind of still, of course, has that aesthetic today. But um, yeah. we, uh, yeah, we were just, it was so random. And the randomness and leaving the typos in was actually part of the brand, the way that it looked. It, it was all in Times New Roman, which was the default font setting for browsers back then if there wasn't this font code. And we mm-hmm. thought that was really funny, you know? And so everyone else was trying to polish everything pixel perfect. And they were like, do you guys know your site looks like that? And it was like so bad. <laughs> and then that became the brand and i learned a lot of i learned a lot about marketing and communication i think through that process and having it work Mm, and then we added in the interviews and the interviews i think are really what made it um i don't know respected i guess i mean getting futura to do an interview with us really early on kind of like gave us a a free pass for probably still to the day but in you i don't think and correct me if i'm wrong i don't think you guys were really taking all the credit for the brilliance early on It, it it wasn't like you know you had a masthead and it was like, these are the the guys. These are the people behind this Well, stuff. there was no links to social back then. So it's like, we did have an yeah. about page that was like a picture, I think, of me and Chuck. And then eventually me, Chuck, and Virgil sitting at a train station. But it kind of didn't matter. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I think it may have had our masthead, like, thoughts on the internet from Benjamin, Chuck, and Virgil. But, like, when you clicked them, it's like, where did it go? It would have to go to your own website. And I didn't have anything on okay. my website, so. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, that makes more sense. But yeah, no, I think we didn't. But we also social. weren't really active on, to your point, like, we weren't jumping on the message boards being like i'm i'm the brilliance guy, writer guy you know yeah yeah you're reddit ama right true <laughs> yeah that's that's right and then in box water hits what 2000 2009 is when we started yeah mm-hmm. and that i think is where a lot of people really were like trying to connect the irl of you because i remember it was at rsvp right yeah that was the first store in chicago that we launched it in yeah yeah and that was with um that would have been virgil, virgil and, and don and yeah. don don c don crawley um did you ever get one of his uh snapbacks i don't know i may have one stashed somewhere he's one of my favorite characters in the entire scene of streetwear in the past 20 years. He's so great. I just love Wait, that why guy. is that? Have you ever interacted with him? Uh, n- not like one-on-one. Well, he's but... back here in Chicago now. He was living in LA for a little bit, but um, I don't know. There was something about him. And when, when Virgil started working with Kanye and stuff, like you would, you would interact with Don quite a bit if you were around that scene. Yeah. And he's just like, everyone describes it. He's like unbelievably caring, fascinated about what you're doing, deeply aware of everything that's going on. And he's one of those like, never forgets a detail. Like it would be five years and I wouldn't see him. And he'd be like, yo, Ben, what's going on? And he would like, you know, stand up and give you a big hug in front of all these famous people he was with and he really made you feel included but he also was like an insight he's like a walking encyclopedia of everything that's happened in the last 20 years you know jeez that's uh that's a heavy amount of empathy he's just a cool guy man he's very cool yeah wait wait hold on a second okay before you send that dm or text that friend i know what you're thinking you're ready to buy your first serious watch or in other cases maybe your fourth or your fifth 
But look, man, it's hard out there. It really is. From this dealer or that store that wants the purchase history or whatever. I mean, you're just, I don't know, you're almost ready to walk away from the whole game. But fear not, my friends. Check out Bezel. Bezel is the trusted marketplace for buying and selling your next luxury watch with expert in-house authentication on every purchase. With over 18,000 watches listed right now, as of the time I'm recording this, from a mix of professional dealers to private sellers, you're just going to find what you're looking for. But wait, wait, I know. You're like, Jeremy, I'm sorry. They don't have that X Rolex or that insane Omega. Well, reach out to them. Bezel has a real team of real people. Just create an account and be connected with a private client advisor, and they will guide you through the entire process every step. Once you decide on your watch, it's overnighted to Bezel HQ where their in-house team of experts authenticate it, and then it's on your way to you. If anything is amiss, the watch is not listed correctly, whatever it is, they'll let you know, the buyer know, and the offer to refund you or source you a new one at a similar price. (laughs) That's pretty good, right? This has been part of the Bezel ethos since launch. I've even spoke to the founders about it. And now you can make an offer on a watch, buy it outright, or bid it at auction. Bezel is the highest rated watch marketplace out there. Even Trustpilot shows Bezel is 4.9 out of 5 stars with rave reviews. Okay, okay, you're still on the fence? Dig into the Blamo feed yourself and listen to my chat with the Bezel co-founders and, well, see for yourself. But you got this. I believe in you. Visit GetBezel.com and buy and sell your next luxury watch. That's GetBezel.com. GetBezel.com. So you got the brilliance going, you have boxed water, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you are famous, famous. No, You're influencer's influencer. No, but I mean, I think that was the thing too, is like you, you, you were the influencer's influencer. I don't, I mean, I don't really know any other better way, but I kind of actually didn't. Um, yeah, maybe it's the aw shucks like Midwestern in us, but I didn't really yeah. talk about my direct involvement in <laughs> direct involvement, being the founder of boxed water. <laughs> Um, you can even hear it still. Um, and it's just a preface like that company feels like a lifetime ago to me. It's almost, um, the same as the programming era and all that kind of stuff. I tend to have these waves in my life that the next wave is significantly different than the previous. I think they all inform one another, but that one, um, having a product that, so I did the first round of funding to get it onto the shelves and like promptly like ran my accounts to, you know, total zero to get it onto the shelves. And some investors came in that were great and they helped out and, 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 and that's like a whole other story and, and kind of the, the scale of it, but launching something physical after being digital for so long, right. Blogging mm-hmm. and software development, and mm-hmm. you could touch it and people could buy it for a buck 50 or whatever it was at the time mm-hmm. was um, a high. I hadn't really experienced before creating something that people responded to in person. And then it was such an easy model. It's like this store is selling some get into more stores, <laughs> you know? And so that, that era, I just, we just ran really hard for three years and, uh, I didn't really think about my, my personal identity being tied at all to it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing too, is cause maybe it is the Midwest stuff, right? Because there, there's very little, and this is refreshing. There's very little arrogance in these <laughs> things. Even, even as we're talking, you're trying to find ways to credit other people. I mean, it, it's, uh, I mean, it's, well, I have a company named Benjamin Edgar, so I guess, <laughs> I guess I have some sort of hubris to be like, yeah, that's my name. Um, yeah, but what, maybe because you just didn't care to 
thing. I kind of wish I would have named it something else. Yeah, see, there it is. But uh, <laughs> well, because I was out for a walk with Sam Sam Ross from a cold wall one time, and we were just talking. I'm a huge fan of like everything he does and how he kind of like moves within the space. Uh-huh. He's really carved his own lane. I think. I think we'll look back on him as as quite a creator. And uh, he was like, mate, you kind of screwed up using your name. You can never sell this company. And I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like a funny way to think about it. I mean, Helmut Lang would disagree with you. He seems to be well, pretty I mean, happy. You know, Mark Jacobs and you know yeah. a bunch of other people too. But I think like it was just a funny <laughs> thing where I was like, Ooh, you're right. Because I don't have any investors or anything like that. That company is completely independent. But but no, so Boxed Water gets gets quite large. and uh, you know, Quite large yeah it's quite yeah. it's quite big it, it's really interesting though i think a lot of the projects i've started and i think a lot of just the internet in general i would say that company my own company and all those they cast a larger shadow than sometimes the reality so I, I have to like remind people like no one is crazy i'll just like make sure everyone knows like no one's crazy wealthy from that thing yet or anything i mean sure maybe there's some stock value on paper and things like that but to me it's more satisfying to actually the most satisfying part about that company one was attempting to solve an environmental problem uh, incrementally rather than like oh we're just gonna swing a hammer at this or yell at customers and tell them they need to do, you know change their life this way it's like let's adapt and let's work mm-hmm. with within the existing behavior but the fact that i the design of it is where i do have maybe a little bit of arrogance because i remember being like we didn't have investors at the, at the start so the design was entirely my own and I, I would look at the nelson bench which is like one of my favorite pieces of furniture and it's kind of boring but it's like george for, nelson the yeah yeah. Refer- yeah yeah okay sorry and it lives in museums i saw they have them at LaGuardia now like and they live yeah. in mid-century modern homes and they look really good when they're worn out and all that and i was like that's the goal is a design that never changes isn't obnoxious and yelling at you but is like Ooh, I know what that is instantly when I see it. Yeah. And that was the goal. And so for the fact, I mean, Boxwater actually has probably had about like seven different iterations of, on the design mm-hmm. um, since we started. But uh, the fact that it still works today is probably my favorite part. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, because it's, it's it's like a uh, for someone my age, I mean, it reminded me of milk mm-hmm. in school, you know, and milk in general. I mean, everyone had paper, paper, milk things, which is what we're doing now, except now there's a little plastic thing where it's easier to pour mm-hmm. but you know, we tried to do it. one without that actually it just didn't it wasn't shelf stable unfortunately well yeah i mean it's with the you know pop in the little corner and we actually know we actually have done ones that don't have the spout at all and have like the most amount of paper possible because that's the goal and we yeah. would do them for marathons so you were basically just chugging the small one in one shot rather than needing to reseal it but you no know, we were obsessive in the early days about that but that yeah that company is fascinating to me yeah it's interesting too i mean there's a bit of an egoless design and i don't know why i keep honing in on this because it, it it sounds like you you make things and then you you're past them I, versus I, like adding them as like armor on your career and your I resume probably internalized that i've definitely had some friends be like dude if you just put together like a, a cv or something you could get a job like anywhere you know but then i'm like yeah but then i'd have to have a job um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, this is not solving the core problem <laughs> yeah I don't, the whole point was to not have a job um in regards to putting things behind me, I don't put them behind me, but I'm obsessed with the products speaking for uh, the, the company rather than the creator or the founder. You know, humans are mm. humans can fail. I don't think products can't fail, but like humans are complicated people or complicated beings. And the, if if it's entirely based on the creator and not the product, I think you start to something happen. Yeah, I don't know. And it's so funny because I, I don't idolize Steve Jobs, but I love what he built, you know, and he was very much the figurehead of it. And I do think the company is a little bit more sterile now with him not there. But um, and there's no Johnny either. 
I mean, because yeah, it sounds the, like you're Mark Newson, Johnny I've got. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. I, yeah, I lean probably more Johnny than Mark, but like I'm like obsessed with the whole love from thing. I think like that's one of the cooler kind of quiet companies that's been started. Every time I, I bring up Sam again, like I've seen him hanging out with Mark. I'm like, oh, I just want to be a fly on the wall and like hear what they're <laughs> talking about, you know. But no, so that, that, that I think I think I have had people be like, uh, yeah, I was recently hanging out with someone in New York and was like, oh, the company. I was like, you know, a box water. I've been fairly busy with that. They were like, well, what's your involvement there? And I had to be like, ah, started it, you know, and they were like, they don't believe you, you know, like it's, it's, so I don't know what it is about me that that's a little coy about that stuff, but. Oh, really? So they, they didn't believe you? They, no, they they believe you, but it took them like a minute to like, I know they wanted to Google it. You know what I mean? But I think it's because you're not an arrogant prick. And I think this is, this is the downside, right? I think I can. I'm I'm sure it can be. We can give it a try. (laughs) But like, I think there's even people joke about this. It's called founder syndrome, Mm -hmm. right? And and a lot of times that phrase comes from founders being so intertwined in their product and their company that they more or less have blinders on and they're they're unable to listen to counsel and feedback. Mm -hmm. And, And they become so emotionally intertwined in their own company that they they build their ego into their product. And I think the biggest thing that you mentioned that I'm the most excited by is you're like, no, 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 it's about the product on its own. And the humans have failed and, and they're, they're failures and they continue to fail and they're, you know, they're driven by ego. A product is, has no ego, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I mean, that's accidentally more philosophical than I meant it to be, but, but it's bingo. somewhat true, you know? <laughs> well, and that's the thing is I'm like, okay, so where did that, I mean, cause that's, there's a level of almost enlightenment that you're that you're at that having the divorce from the ego and the product. And I know you you were kind of talking a bit about that, but to just kind of mm. pick at that a little bit more because I that I don't think is something that is that's learned. That's learned through experience. Mm. I hadn't, I think when some people ask me, boy, did I know we were going to get this philosophical? Um, My bad. No, I, it's really fast. I think about this stuff actually quite a bit. And I talk, I talk with other friends about it. I don't know if it's learned as much as I think a deep amount of it is there's probably some insecurity. I don't really love the phrase because it's overused, but um, imposter syndrome stuff. Um, yep. When something finds success. Um, also, they're just being really candid, like, and I don't know if enough people kind of talk about this, but if something finds, if it if it casts a really huge shadow or it gets a lot of press or it uh, <clears throat> enables you a life that is, there's more kind of people looking at you, yet maybe it hasn't like performed financially as well as you want to, or there's shakiness behind the scenes because that's just the reality of companies, you know, peek behind the curtain of, of any company and it's probably not what you think it is. Absolutely. There can be a disconnect, I think, in the founder or the creator or even team members where they're like, the outside thinks this and the inside reality is this. And that that dissonance between the two is probably baked into me to always be like, watch your step. Like, don't mm. get too proud. Don't get too happy. Not, not, maybe not get too happy, but like, just be careful. Watch your step, you know. Does that come from your mom or your dad? I don't know. That one, I don't know. I think it comes from leaving home really early. And like, I mean, everything's on, you know, my parents didn't give me any money. I think my mom, she took me to Ikea and got me a couch and some like, you know, hey. some silverware and some, you know, all the stuff that you need for your kitchen and stuff. But it was just me. Yeah. Did you ever go back to your folks and go do something nice for them? Uh, I mean, I haven't, I haven't bought anybody like any Rolexes or anything yet. No. I mean, I hang out with my mom quite a bit. We go to dinner a couple times a month. Who picks up the tab? I try to, yeah. <laughs> 
There it is. Yeah, yeah man. I mean, no, I, I say it because I do the same thing and where there's, because I didn't have some of these things mm-hmm. when I'm around my mom. Because I mean, one of the reasons I moved back to St. Louis was to try to take care of my folks. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad's in a, he's in a facility, he's in a home, like a home um, where he'll be okay. forever. And my mom's on her own. And so when I'm out with my mom, I'm like, you will have no hardship. Yeah. I, I'm paying. It, I'm like, paying. We're doing it. It's dialed in, you know, to like, it, yeah. Should I have some sort of significant windfall and stuff? I think it would be very, very enjoyable to yeah. sh- share that, you know? And this isn't, this isn't about you go and you buy your parents a house. This mm-hmm. isn't like the rock sort of thing where it's like, yo, I went, you know, because even I, I then. I think when I hear people talking about that, I'm like, that had very little to do with your mom. It sounds like it has a lot to do with you. You know what I mean? It, it has a lot to do with your taxes is basically well, the thing. That, it's like, well, we made like, a trust and all I want to do this. Like, I want to talk about that I did it. I think that's always been a little funny. You know what I mean? Like, it should, I almost find it to be a little bit more private, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, that's even better. Because, you know, even me, it's not like you go and you put it on the feed where it's like, yo, I, I treated my, my folks or I did this. Yeah. <laughs> right? But I think for me, I, I still have... And I want to be conscious to never project here, and maybe occasionally I am, is is that, you know, you want them to know that you're okay. I think it does. Pro- yeah, you're, it's a form of projecting, like, it all worked out. Yeah, like, yeah. I got it. Yeah. yeah so, like, anyway, I, I digress. So, <laughs> you continue to to build this company, and then the object company starts, which mm-hmm. I think is is kind of great, because even though... You know, you were speaking with your friend who had given you the uh, the feedback of that it's your own name. Is there anything that you think you can or can't make that's limited by your company? Because, I mean, from weird little cigarette things to shirts <laughs> and stuff, like, what's the line that runs through the company? Yeah, I had a good friend of mine, Archie from, from PlayLab. He's like kind of a mentor of mine and just a dear friend. And he was like, I have no idea what you're going to make next. And that's my favorite yeah. part. And I was like, me neither. <laughs> you know, like, I don't, you know. But because um, my product cycle is actually pretty quick from like idea to touching it is usually like three to four months. So I've like really worked hard at like the denim and stuff like that and the shoes and stuff that of course took longer. But like cigarette holder was, yeah, it was probably like three months from like having the idea to having it for sale. And so I can go really quick and that allows the ideas because like I think that ideas like they just kind of erode over time. So something happens. But I would say like the object company is like that it's found any success and that strangers buy it is like the ultimate sensation, right? That people you don't know are patronizing this thing, mm-hmm, discovered mm-hmm. it, chose to give you some money and, and seem happy with it. Um, that's my favorite part of it. But it is a personal utopia. And, you know, Jean Tuteau talked a lot about that, you know, in the earlier days of APC, that he was kind of creating this like utopian place for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm looking for that, you know, there's no investors. <laughs> just me yeah um it's profitable tiny but profitable and it has this red thread and it has a bit of a following now where i just feel incredibly lucky that i have a platform and this platform allows me to explore materials because i think actually the, to answer your question it's, it's just about the materials i'm obsessed with oh i've seen this milling process or this casting process what product could i make through my language with that oh okay so you you're not necessarily it's not like the whiteboard of like this is the object that solves the the issue it's you're witnessing how things are being created and then you're finding something that can be created with it and to be more philosophical is like every object is a is a self-portrait is how i describe it so as as i've like you know you're you're talking earlier about like why do you kind of hide behind the things it's like these are very personal things because they're not useful they're not solving any problem beyond your emotional satisfaction or desire when you get the product you're like i like this and i i bought it because i like it not because it quenches my thirst or uh, f- fulfills me in some other way so like it's very selfish 
I mean, it's an incredibly selfish project, but um, yeah. So, so first well, it's about the material and then it's like running it through the lens of like, how would I interpret this material as a self-portrait? Well, if it's selfish, why do you sell it? Um, so I can make more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause I, I feel like if it why was really selfish their work, you know, it's like a very interesting question. I think it's a fair question. Yeah. I mean, I, the funny thing is the amount of artists that don't ever had any intention. You think Vermeer wanted to be like, you know, the, the guy, Yeah, the dude basically bankrupt himself trying to spend all of his money on paint. Mm-hmm was like an idiot with his finances uh, there's a compulsion <laughs> for sure i think i think yeah i've told people i was like I'll, i could be homeless or really really wealthy the compulsion to create if you have it is inherent the hardest part is trying to find out a way to do it sustainably so it doesn't stress you out and when i say sustainably i mean for it to make some money you know like yeah i mean you got to pay bills i think that's sure. the thing is like we're not in the utopian society i mean you got to pay for your milk and your coffee and all these other things or you know but I, did you ever read um Walter Isaacson's Da Vinci book. Uh, I did actually, yeah. The, the craziest thing, <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's that that counts. The craziest thing, like when I was uh, reading that was or listening, whatever, was the fact that like the dude didn't really realize that he was an artist and he was an engineer. you know, and, yeah, yeah. And I think that was the thing. And the art was simply a way. He was like, oh, th- this has value to people, and so I can make these art. I can make these paintings and do these things for people. But even then, he didn't even know how to let things go. I mean, the fact that like he kept working on the Mona Lisa for so long, mm-hmm. like the, it, it makes me wonder what was the mindset and like what other artists have the similar mindset in which like one things are never done, which is dangerous, mm-hmm. and then. Two, the fact that like, if you're making something to fulfill something else, how will you be fulfilled? Well, a small anecdote is like, I've had products sell out and I'm like, oh man, they're all gone now. You know, And you never make more. That's the other thing. Well, I do. I do. I've restocked like, I keep talking about the cigarette holder, but I've restocked that one like five or six times. It's quite successful. But every time. I believe it's it's sold out right now. Just to hold it up. Just did earlier this week. (laughs) And I was like, all right, gotta make some more. But um, I remember every time a product sells out and like the inventory is all gone. Obviously, it's nice. Like it, it means it worked, and people really liked it. Um, but there's this like I like being around the objects. I mean, that probably makes me sound a little crazy, but like I like being. Yeah, around. I think it's fun to be around. Uh, like I have a table full of samples next to me of products that I've been working on and things like that. So, mm-hmm. And I think to your point about Da Vinci and like all that, I think he was selling those paintings and getting a uh, you know commissions or um, what would you call it back then patronage. Um, yeah. Because he had a life to pay for and all that. But I think it's like, I've gotten really into cast era uh, milling in, in 316 stainless steel, which is surgical stainless steel. It's very expensive. And the more my products are successful, the less I worry about that expense of making the things I want to make at the highest quality I can possibly make them. So that's where the commerciality comes in for me. On the steel stuff, what's the difference between 316 and 904? Couldn't tell you. I'd have to look at the two alleys. It's probably some sort of combination of the, the nickel that's in it and the corrosion resistance is 904 for like watch steel yeah that's yeah, the like only reason why i knew oyster steel or whatever head. it's like similar to what rolex uses yeah um, 316 is surgical grade is what i know and then um 904 is supposed to be even more i think it's resistant. even more so it's probably like a higher nickel content or whatever it might be probably harder to mill oh mm-hmm. okay yeah as as some i have a, a sad collection of steel watches and I mean, i'm always awesome. like how long are these gonna last forever is this good it's pretty yeah. crazy how stable that how stable a watch band is yeah do you do you ever see yourself getting into the watch stuff um i've I've been trying to buy a watch for 20 years and i just can't pull the trigger i don't know it's some sort of weird uh my dad was into them a bit i remember i i told myself and i was like if you can buy three i was going to get an air king 
Okay. That was going to be my Why first an Air one. King? What's that? Why an Air King? It was the cheapest one. Okay, yeah, fair. That was, I mean, that was my first Rolex. Was and Air it was King. like, this is in like 2000. And I, I, oh, man. I achieved that. And I remember being like, all right, like in your fun fund. Um, and I just couldn't do it. I felt, I don't know what it was about that. I, I, I have that thread through me too about, and I spend plenty of money, but, uh, <laughs> But, but yeah, no, I want to get into watches. I think right now my, I would probably lean towards like AP and I know everyone is on it, the AP wave, but I'm, and I'm Ooh. really weird. I talk with Brent about this a lot. I like two-tone watches, which is super weird because it doesn't even necessarily fit with my aesthetic. Two-tone watches are great because in a weird way, they're, they will always be timeless. Yeah. When people are like, oh, they're coming back in. It's like they never left. Yeah. The people that have been buying two-tone watches have never paid attention. Yeah, to they're you. kind of obtuse, I think. They, they are it's like, yeah. oh, I know that shape, but oh, interesting that you went with the two-tone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the two-tone Explorer, the, the most recent iteration mm-hmm. of the Rolex Explorer that came out, they did one in uh, two-tone, which is just bizarre to many people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's incredible. I mean, if I would have had the money, I would have gotten that instead of my steel one. But um, it's it's just a very double take watch versus like a you know Datejust or something. But I don't think I could ever design a watch. I've t- I've chatted with some. I mean, I did for for fun years ago. Worked on one with a friend as like a like a mental exercise but um there's something so sacred and like about i think that's like i have a friend who's a a car designer um at rolls royce which is like pretty insane yeah and uh i can't even i talk about the details and wheels and you know i'm very obsessed with cars but uh i don't i've never taken a pen to a piece of paper and been like look at this shape you know and i think it's very (laughs) similar i think it's very similar with with watches there's certain things where i'm just like that's not for me i think that there is a shape but also so this shape right Mm -hmm. this is a very bizarre this is a universal geneva it looks like a tank it looks beautiful i love it yeah it's a it's a cool watch i mean yes it is like the shape but i think the other thing a lot of people that i've seen that get into watches they're always making like casts and like Mm -hmm. you know right because it's the feel of the object on your wrist absolutely versus just the shape i mean because yeah like gerald gento and people talk about the 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 royal oak or the nautilus yeah it's like these cool shapes and elongated lines and all that stuff but i mean just having how these things feel on your wrist and the fact that in most cases every wrist really is different Mm -hmm. i mean that's the thing you know because people were like oh man small watches are coming back i think it's like no the people who are influencing watches just have smaller wrists right now like that that is fascinating way to view it you're right i guess (laughs) yeah yeah i talked to a friend about this as well that's really because i have a really thin wrist and i look at just even a 36 on me looks huge yeah i mean and and for me yeah like 36 or 37 i just got the the recent um tudor black bay that is a um it's a 37 millimeter Mm -hmm. so it's a tudor black bay 54 there was the 58 which was like 39 ish 38 um but it's even smaller because it's supposed to look like the original sort of subs and Mm. the tutor of that time and it's sick and it's crazy just like the fact that it's we're talking millimeters smaller you're like this is a whole other this is a whole other thing it really never experienced anything like it it's it's (laughs) it's like the tiniest detail it's like i think about denim and denim is the same way it's like the tiniest edit on a pair of jeans especially uh now that we're back wearing a higher waisted jean is the the tiniest change to that uh, has such a dramatic fit and 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 it communicates so much you know are they tight are they straight are they wide you know stovepipe are they wide and i'd be the denim thing is fascinating in in comparison to the watches do you think there's any sort of weird parallel between designers and designers own expressions of themselves because i feel like in most cases most designers have a uniform Mm -hmm. and they don't really change that much in their own physical appearance and what they wear but the objects that they're making are always changing i um i think about this a lot because i remember my first time it was like one of mark jacobs 
spring shows in like the early 2000s yeah and he came out and he was back when he had the long the longer hair he had the clear glasses yeah pre-glow up yeah when he was (laughs) under the influence and uh (laughs) he would wear a blue calm de garçon shirt i think and gray slacks Mm -hmm. and was white tennis stan smith's i think and i remember being like wait none of it's mark jacobs like you you can get all (laughs) of it like why aren't you wearing and that was a huge epiphany for me that then helped me later on in life when i became far more uniform there's a photo i found of myself from like 15 years i was like i'm wearing the exact same outfit like down to the sweater like the whole thing the navy polo navy merino sweater like blue jeans like that's it you know and i don't know what it is i think maybe we find more satiation or the part of the brain that needs to express itself gets projected onto the things that we make and then for me i don't feel the need to stand out at all you know i'd certainly don't enjoy standing out but but then there it is right this is that's this is almost the whole pod but like <laughs> why don't you feel the need to stand out you let your objects talk for yourselves and i think different personalities you know they may have trash in their home sure. no other cool understandings of them but everything that they're embodying physically is always different and changing i mean when you see someone dressed well though like the older i get the more i respect that not just like, oh, you got the nice label on or whatever, but like someone who truly dresses well and that doesn't look like the clothes are wearing them, you know, because I think that's a tricky thing. Like, are you wearing the clothes mm-hmm. or are the clothes wearing you? I feel like anytime I put on something interesting, it, especially if you're a heavy uniform dresser, when you change, obviously your friends are going to be like, what, what, do you, what is that? You know, <laughs> but like, but you yourself don't feel comfortable and that it projects, right? Um, so when I see someone who can dress like crazy, not crazy, just like like fully express themselves and they look like elegant. It's like, that's probably one of the cooler things to, to see. Who, who popped into your head when you, when you said that statement? I mean, Jeremy O'Harris, like just incredible. Right. Um, Sam Hine. Uh, then there's people like, I don't know. It's like, obviously Phoebe Philo dress is really simple, but if, anyone else were to try and wear that proportion, I think it would mm-hmm. look out of place on them. Think mm-hmm. about Carl Lagerfeld. Like, how cool is that? Like, the, there's a, Have you ever watched that documentary about him? Oh, yeah, yeah. Where he opens the drawer and it's like a thousand different collars in it. That like <laughs> yeah. blew my mind. I was like, man, that's exactly <laughs> what I hoped you had. You know? This is like Edwardian stuff where Fully. it's like, yeah. Holes full of chrome <laughs> hearts rings. Like that dude was on a whole other wave, man. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I really admire that. And I'm only maybe the past three, four years have I tried to find a way where it's like, maybe I got to just stop chasing all these other things that I like, or I can, I can like something, but not have to own and embody all of it. You know, it's like, look, I'm just going to have the same, you know, 501s or mm-hmm. whatever, and white Oxfords and blue Oxfords and a sweater and I'll just move on with my life. I once like, asked a friend who has an image blog, uh, this is years ago. And he had posted something. I was like, oh, wow, do you own? It was a pair of jeans. I was like, do you own a pair of those? He's like, no, I have the JPEG. And I was like, ooh, perfect answer. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like uh, someone who uses their initials a lot. Yeah. The boy Justin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah I, that's such a good response. Damn. That's what I thought. Because you it's, it has stuck with you me for like 10 years. It. Yeah. He probably doesn't even remember it, but I remember that being like, what I took from that was that you can, you can deeply appreciate something, be very knowledgeable on it and not need to own it. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, certainly there's some, it's like if you sat and talked about how food tastes all day and it never tasted, that might be a bit odd, but I think it is nice to own things and to, and to participate in it, but um, it's fun to just be into it too. It's like a sport. Are there any objects or things that have been the opposite for where it's like, no, I have to own this? Yeah. Uh, I started collecting art, nothing like crazy, probably 15 years ago. And there's a slight obsession 
for sure. Okay. So like, me. what do you got? My, my, my crowning piece that I bought recently is I have a original Max Lamb chair, which is like a huge deal for me to have that. Um, I bought it from Salon 94. Um, and I have since bought some other stuff from them too, but like, I, I know it's a little cliche, but I buy like a lot of the art chairs. So it's like, I have a Donald Judd original, the one, cause Salon 94 now has his estate for furniture. I got one of the Judd pine chairs. Uh, Whoa. Jonathan Mickey's an artist who just got his stuff acquired by Vitra Museum and the Art Institute. Yep. I have one of his carbon fiber chairs. And then I buy younger, you know, younger, I'm looking around my apartment, I buy younger designers chairs, uh, Obviously, I have the Tom Sachs chair like everybody else does. Um, yeah. No, the, the art and object stuff for me is like a compulsion for sure. Like I have Did to you... own. Like for, here's a good example. Like I don't have the, the capital to. And it's just interesting. Nor do I really like his work all the time that much. But I'm a huge Jeff Koons fan. Like massive. I'm more interested in his interviews Whoa. than I am in like his art. Um, I did a brilliance post on this actually a while ago about how I like his interviews sometimes more than his art. But I have bought as many of the ads that he did do you remember when he was taking ads out um an art mm-hmm. form so I, I buy those and i have like the original cuts of the ads like the banality one and all that stuff and then i bought recently a drawing a real it's an original drawing from him where someone had him sign the inside of this book that is a huge piece of paper that just says gagosian in it and then mm-hmm. he signed a flower on it and dated it. i think it's 1997 so that's my like that was a compulsion to be like i want to i have to own and participate in this not just read the interviews so that i certainly deviate in some instances wow that's i mean that that's also cool because it's it's not so much about the core product mm-hmm. of the uh of the artist but just like other things that they it's very like warholian yeah <laughs> and then I have like a, quite a bit of Tyrell Winston's work. He's a very dear friend of mine, but I started buying his stuff before we were like buds. I have some of his stuff oh, too. Oh, damn. Yeah, I think, it's, I think people think my taste in art and things like that would be a little different than like here's a funny one do you remember when virgil did the vitra collaboration it was like there was like a chair and a lamp he did the classic yes. Prouvé one yeah Prouvé chair and Prouvé lamp um i obsessively collected the ceramic bricks that he did that were numbered so like i have like oh. seven of them because i thought that was the most kind of obtuse thing in the whole collection the chair seemed almost like obvious to me but the, these weird ceramic bricks i was like how did he sell that to vitra like what was the conversation like you know when he was doing that they're like these cast ceramic bricks with a screen printed number one to a thousand on each one. It's a very interesting, like those are the kind of objects I'm more interested in. Like these soup, like the Max Land stuff is like very bright, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Well, on the Virgil stuff, I mean, you guys were, you interacted together, but like, where did you, did you guys work together much? Didn't ever work together a lot. Just a, just a deep, you know, friendship. I mean, it started around the brilliance era crashing on each other's couches and stuff you know we were coming up together this is in 2006 and yeah. stayed really close like i mean i was in like a wedding you know it's like weird things like i think i i always tell people like I, there was two buckets for him that i had mentally it was like there was a friendship that was just a friendship like two friends hanging out going to dinner or whatever mm-hmm. and we rarely would talk about work when we hung out and then there was like i was a fan like a total fan. And I think I would mm-hmm. have absolutely been the same fan had I not known him. So it's a really interesting relationship, you know, to, to be like, to watch him find his legs and find his, his success and, and define, I think, an era. Um, and then to be buds with him too, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I have a friend that's a similar situation in which they're 
on a music side mm-hmm. and they, they have a very strong personality and in, in music. But like for me, when we hang out, we don't really ever, it's, it's never about like the career or any of the sort of achievements or any of the things that are happening. It's just like they're, making they're fun human. of a TV show. Yeah, or exactly. Something. Like yeah. we're going for a yeah. walk or like talking about the food that we're eating or going to a basketball game or something. Yeah. I don't, but yeah, he was a, uh, he was a North star for me. It continues to be. And, and even back you know, early on, I was like, man, this guy is special. His way of communicating, his his passion, his desire, like to participate at the highest level was uh, pretty infectious. Yeah, I think, I mean, the excitement, obviously, that I've picked up with just also the, the fact that everyone can be an artist. Yeah. Which I probably still don't believe. Same. And that's my own fault. Yeah, but I still have my I own insecurities. That, but he, yeah, what's one thing to crack yeah. the door open, it's another one to just enable everyone to feel a certain <laughs> way, you know? <laughs> yeah. I I really admire that and I I think that's something that I want to find ways to get better at on my own. Mm-hmm. Um anyway, to to jump on the car stuff, you had said that you're a big car guy. That doesn't own a car currently, but yeah. Wait, hold on. Yeah. What do you mean you don't own a car? I, you live in well, you live in Chicago in downtown. Yeah, it just sat yeah. across in my lot like fully detailed. It was uh, the last one I had was a uh Audi A5 competition and uh Whoa, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, all right. I've had, like I've had this some interesting ones. I've had a couple Audis, a couple Land Rovers, Saab, Saab 95 Turbo 2001 for the heads with the carbon fiber. So you dash. walked away before they blew up. No, I was right at the end because I had to um my window switches stopped working or were intermittently working and the dealerships yeah. are kind of like closing. And we found yeah. uh, someone or a sob collector in Japan that had this part and it was like unbelievably expensive. It was supposed to be like 80 bucks or something. I think with installation shipping and everything it was like a thousand dollars, you know, for this part. So that was towards the end. But I, I still like the, those cars were so weird, so quirky, so fun to drive. Uh, yeah, no, the car thing is I'll eventually get one again. I mean, I waste a lot of time looking at them still and I have friends now in yeah. the industry and stuff, but yeah, they're moving sculptures. There's such a, such a communication device. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask, cause like, what is it about cars and designers where it's like, that's the final frontier, no matter what you create and design, people still are like, yeah, but a car. Yeah. I think I don't know if it's quite the final frontier for me, but um, what's really um, what I'm most fascinated with the car thing is how new it is to like humanity. It's only like a hundred years old and not even really like right around a yeah, hundred yeah, right. where it's crept into. It is such a part of our uh, humanity. It's like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. like anyone gets successful. What'd you do? Bought a car. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah um, you're right. I, I'm kind of fascinated with that. There's something tribal or something in us that's like the sense of freedom maybe that you have from a car. You know, getting your license when you're 16 and the, the sense of freedom that it communicates. And then, of course, you apply these veneers of luxury and things like that on top of it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I I definitely connect on, on the freedom aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it's funny because my first car was through a friend, a family friend who had given us, he'd worked um, in Saudi Arabia for like McDonnell Douglas. Wow. And he gave us this 86 240 DL. Very cool. I was going to say it has Volvo. to be an old Mercedes, yeah. It was old Volvo. Oh, I'm sorry, old Volvo, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was... You know, and it's funny because I tell my friends now and they're like, yeah, I want to get an old Volvo from, and I'm like, no, you yeah. <laughs> they're so I'm charming, like, you don't. but it's like, it's going to be in the shop all the time. <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, I think it had like 300 some odd thousand miles by the time oh, wow. it died and, and stuff, but like now in, in the weird way, and I'm curious, like I'm more interested in all these cars that are just like overloaded with tech, mm-hmm. you know, that there's all, you know, not the self-driving sort of things. But it's like, what is it? The new, uh, the new like Hyundai Palisade. It basically can like back up and drive forward in very small increments for like parking assist mm-hmm. from your from your hand. Yeah. 
from your from I saw the someone furlough parking their car into this weird spot in an alley downtown the other day and they were just standing outside with their phone like driving their car into the spot and I've obviously I've seen a million I've, I've subscribed to way too many car YouTube videos but to see it just in your neighborhood is like it, it was jarring it was like and I asked him I was like what are you doing he's like it's a remote control look at this yeah. <laughs> who's who's your who's your car guy then is it like Doug DeMero uh seen through glass guy Sam from seen through glass oh yeah yeah, yeah huge fan of him yeah he's really good mm-hmm. he's really good I I I love that's the only time I watch YouTube on my TV is to watch car stuff. Yeah. It's so good. Um, well, we're starting we're starting to wrap pretty soon here. But is there is there any other stuff you want to like add, mention or plug or discuss before we? No, I mean, one again, thanks for having me on. I'm actually fascinated. I was wondering which which direction we would go. And uh, it, it, it's refreshing to talk about maybe the reasoning behind or just to be kind of open with the reasoning behind we maybe make the things that we make or, or work on the things that we work on rather than like the specific product itself. Uh, the consumer will make their decision on the products. You know what I mean? I think what's more interesting is always the underlying. Like that's what I'm when I listen to an interview with someone else. I'm like, talk about what makes you excited about making it, not always the materiality or the cost or the supply chain or whatever. Like what was the point of it? You know, I'm yeah, sorry, I mean, what was the genesis me- of it? Yeah, for for me, it was, I was like, well, okay, I was like, this guy, he's made all these things. So there's no interview that will do justice to the creation of any mm-hmm. object, but there there may, might be something that can do justice to the mindset of the creator, you know, and to where it's like, okay, what, you know, what gives you the confidence to make stuff? What, you know, because so I think, like, for me, it's like trying to connect with, I, I feel like I'm only able to connect with um, an artist product by knowing more about the artist. Like when I hear more about the struggle that was going on to use kind of a trite example between the Beatles mm-hmm. and the interpersonal things that were going on in their lives, my relationship with their songs increased tenfold. Oh, completely agree. And so, you know, because I'm always trying to find some sort of human empathetic mm-hmm. connection because I'm like, oh, so not only were you able to make this, but what part of the struggle of your own life did you embody into this object accidentally? Mm-hmm. And I think about that a lot. Like, is there any product, I mean, that you've ever made where it was like, you know what, I was in this mindset and this is what I was doing. And then that kind of led me to this. Well, I do think it goes back to like you were saying, it's like, I'm a huge fan of the Rolling Stones. We probably really only listen to eight songs. And maybe maybe that's the case for a lot of people. <laughs> But to me, that's it's like cool. when I'm hearing and I'm listening to like the story because I've tried, I've consumed like every book I can about those guys because it's such an interesting moment and like the Nelcott stuff and like the way they were living, the traveling before that was even easy. I mean, planes were just kind of starting to come into like, oh, we can like use these. They were taking ships yeah. and stuff. They took a ship one time, I think, from the UK to Brazil or something. It's unbelievable. But that's what I'm li- that's what I'm hearing when I'm listening to the music or the Coon stuff, like his totally bizarre interviews where he's talking about like almost a religious nature of personal freedom that he's achieving through the art rather than like when when we go look at it it's like oh like a shiny balloon dog you know I th- i'm more fascinated with that being applied to it but in turn are you saying like what was the question is it one of my objects hmm. this one's coming out soon i can show you this one i don't know if you can see it um it look is it a it, trophy no it's it holds a single flower it doesn't look like anything i've uh made before let me show you this one that one's actually the wrong oh one. my god that's sick as fuck yeah i see it it looks immaculate yeah but it's the profile of my face if you look at the negative space so i'm staring at myself in it dude <laughs> that's heady yeah well it's taken from that's a, deep it's taken from a jasper johns painting and then i like reinterpret it this one's milled out of a don't discredit it it's cool to sell the source but it's yeah man yeah. That, that's you yeah it's taken from um that one's milled in aluminum 
that's 6101, but uh, we're doing it in stainless steel because I can't get the polish quite right on aluminum. But yeah, it's aluminum's hard. Yeah, it just it scratches super easy and it ends up looking kind of plastic. But that that object, I think, is the first time like it won't have any tag or logo or words on it. That's I feel like that's when you know that you have real, real success is when you can kind of make something that maybe isn't fulfilling some sort of core need by every single person. But in a way, it's just a, a connection to you. And it's casting a halo on a hat that's 40 or $50 is the same thing as maybe this face that is going to unfortunately be expensive because of the material we're making it in. You know, it doesn't really matter to me because we're not selling that at scale. I'm more interested yeah. in it existing, beautiful photographs of it, and then the other products I make. Because I think if you're wearing the Chicago Switzerland hat, it's the same thing as the vase. They're the same product, basically, you know. Well, hold on, hold on. How? Because they're the, it's an idea. It has very little to do. I mean, yes, the object, I try and make it the best we can. My hats are cut and sewn. It was like a whole process, but it, it, they're, they're all coming from this. I think when I talk about this and I get more philosophical about it, I think it's really just a product of like, if you kind of look at the waves I was talking about earlier, it's a software developer. That was very much me being like, what do you guys need? I'll make it. It had very little to do with me. And then my aesthetic started creeping in my desire to maybe shift how it looked. And that was the end of it because I, I basically yeah. atrophied in my skill. And as a software developer, increased my skill and well, I hope I was increasing it and, and what people might desire. And then there was box water, which is a problem solving exercise. It wasn't that I was super passionate about water. I was looking at a problem in the market, but it was very like design driven. And now we've landed at the place where it's like I've fully, you know, crossed through the membrane into attempting to just create my own small world. So when you're buying anything, any souvenir from the world is the same concept the same person same creator okay i i will agree on that with your perspective mm -hmm. but i think for me as someone who collects objects likes objects i think it's also you know there because obviously there's going to be people who have purchased your stuff and they've just put it in with everything else mm -hmm. you know and but then there's others who kind of like you were saying like they're they're getting a connection to you they're getting a deeper connection to you but i, I think to be able to do that for both people with one object, I think is is one of the most admirable things is like, look, this can be the single serving thing and you can put it in the shelf and you can walk away from mm -hmm. it. You can use it in whatever. Or this is going to be a way where someone's like, no, 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 this is an object company. This is a Benjamin Edgar product. This, you know, I, I think I think is really, really special. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. I, mean, no, yeah. I, I think the trick is like the cigarette holder is a super weird it's almost two years old now, I think, in terms of being available. Yeah, and I remember I was sharing it with some friends early on because I don't share. I share with like there's like three or four people I share stuff with before they come out because I'm like you know gauging their feedback, but I yeah. don't really care. I'm gonna do it anyways because it's, it's such a compulsion. <laughs> but um, they were like, I think you really have something here, you know. And that was my first thing that ever went like viral, like on Twitter. It got like yeah, yeah. And I only I produced such a small amount for that first run, so it sold out in 45 minutes, and I was like, shit. <laughs> so, but but. When you pull that out of your pocket, there's an interesting metric. I'll give you this. I get a lot of orders for that thing at night, not during the mm. day. And someone's out, like they're outside of a bar. I can picture it. They've had a couple drinks and they pull this thing out and, and, they, and someone's like, what the fuck is that thing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it prompts yeah. this conversation. And that to me is like, there's no Google marketing ad spend that can do that. And that's the only thing I know how to do is like prompt a response. And so the Switzerland hat, Switzerland, Chicago is very jarring. Why, why does your hat say that? People stare at you when you wear it, which, which yeah. I remember the first time wearing it being like, shit, now people are staring at me. But um, <laughs> what does that mean? Like, what, is, what does that mean? It's the same prompt as the cigarette holder. So I, I don't, yeah, I'm rambling, but you get the idea.
No, I think I think that's great. It's about like super abstraction is kind of the point. Yeah. Well, damn, I think that's that's a good spot to wrap. <laughs> uh, well, Ben, thank you so much yeah, thanks, for, thanks for, for having hanging me with me. It was great to, to meet you and to, to chat. For sure. Talk to you soon, man. See ya. All right, that's it for the show. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal and our theme music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, share the pod with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, you know, do the stuff that you do when you like things. If you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at info at blamopod.com. And if you want more Blamo, you can, uh, you can join the Blam fam, right? Bad name, better vibe, all right? It's, uh, you can join us at patreon.com forward slash Blamo, where we have tons of exclusive episodes, our amazing Slack community. We also got Blamo Presents Derek Guy. There's a, uh, what, what else? The Triple J Show. I mean, it's lots of fun there. Uh, so, so dive on in. That's it for me. I'll see you all very soon. Take care.